you're listening to Virtual Sentiments. I'm your host, Kristen Collins. Today's episode is a conversation with Eileen Hunt, a professor and political theorist at the University of Notre Dame. We talk about Eileen's most recent book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein. Eileen helps us rethink the dichotomy between what is natural and artificial by discussing the life and work of Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. The artificial life in Eileen's book title refers not just to artificial intelligence, but to ethical debates concerning assisted reproductive technologies used today. Often the debates about these technologies are highly speculative, envisioning dramatic transformations sometime in the future, and neglecting the very real ways that we already use similar technologies. Thinking alongside writers like Shelley allows us to turn our attention to the enduring ethical and political implications of technological change for us, our relationships with each other, and our humanity. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, we are talking to Eileen Hunt, a political theorist and professor at the University of Notre Dame. Her most recent book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, discusses Mary Shelley's novels Frankenstein and the Last Man and science fiction more broadly to reflect on the ethics and politics of advanced technologies like artificial intelligence and genetic engineering. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Uh, It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, it's very much an honor to have you. Um, And you were really a perfect guest in my mind for having on this podcast because your work really resonates with a major motivation that we had when we were developing virtual sentiments, which is the sense that sometimes writers who are drawing on history end up having some of the most prescient insights about both the present and the future. And so thinking about the ethics and politics of technology in democratic societies can really benefit from engaging with more historically informed work. And and you begin artificial life after Frankenstein with this really compelling characterization of Mary Shelley's novels. Um, And if forgive me for I kind of want to take this quote because it's such a nice, succinct explanation of of where I want to start us off with, which is that her novels occupy an imaginative space between a historical and futuristic standpoint. And then you go on to say, rooted in the past, her novels are oriented toward the future. So I was wondering if you could start us off a bit just by setting the scene a little and give us a sense of the historical context of Mary Shelley and her parents and the time that she was writing in and why this time could be such a fruitful part of history for us to engage with when we're thinking about technology today. Well, she was in some ways a child of the Enlightenment, the famous Scottish novelist Muriel Spark, who was one of the first modern biographers of Mary Shelley, titled her first biography of Shelley, Child of Light, calling attention to the ways that uh, Mary Shelley, although we associate her with Gothic literature, with Romanticism in particular, and perhaps also with broader critiques of the Enlightenment in the 19th century. Mary Shelley herself was born in 1797. She was the daughter of two of the leading Enlightenment philosophers of the era, William Godwin 
and Mary Wollstonecraft, Godwin being one of the leading anarchist philosophers of the period and Mary Wollstonecraft being one of the leading proto-feminist philosophers of the era. Uh, so I think Spark was right. We, we, it's best to understand Mary Shelley more as a product of the Enlightenment, especially trends in the 17th and 18th century that highlighted the importance of the rise of modern science for the human condition and also for the ways human beings tend to understand and interpret the world. And her uh, first novel, Frankenstein, published in 1818, was based largely in her in-depth research into science of the era, chemistry, electricity, anatomy, and so on. Mary Shelley was very well-read in science, so she wasn't simply the daughter of Enlightenment philosophers. She was a product of broader scientific trends of the Enlightenment. I think this is why, why it ends up being, why her work ends up being future oriented, because um, the Enlightenment itself, broadly speaking, was future oriented in, in terms of politics, but it also was future oriented because of its its uh, investment in modern science. Uh, you know, science tries to interpret the world toward the end of of making predictions. <laughs> Yeah, no. That, I mean, I I think that it's really helpful to think about the advancements in science that she incorporated into and in thinking about her novel. And you you did a great job explaining to her the influence of her famous parents who were political thinkers. But I think what's really striking is that this that your work and and working in Mary Shelley is bringing us beyond the more typical political texts and arguments into novels, into literature. Um, And something that you point out in the book that I really appreciate was this idea that Mary Shelley, writing of herself in her own writing, said that she was so sensitive to counter arguments that it made it hard for her to write the kind of straightforward political tracks that her parents or her husband, Percy Shelley, had written. But you point out how that kind of multiple, the awareness of multiple perspectives and multiple sides of an argument is what made her suited to literature or political philosophy. I I wonder if you could speak on that a little bit, especially for people who might not understand the sort of different types of writings that you might read in politics and why it's so special that you're working with in this book and your work in general, what you call modern political science fiction. And how do we get from the sort of literary side of things to science fiction? It's a great question. Well, I mean, as you know, from your really important work on Bentham and other Enlightenment philosophers, the, the Enlightenment was an interdisciplinary period. Enlightenment philosophers were, uh, you know, to um, make a, a, a pun, uh, they, they were their Renaissance women and men. They, they dabbled in every genre. They didn't, they didn't uh, separate themselves off in disciplinary silos the way that academia has evolved to do in the, tw- in the 20th and 21st centuries. And Mary Shelley also occupied the space in which intellectuals were interdisciplinary. By definition, I think she saw herself like her parents as someone who understood herself first and foremost as a writer. And as a writer, she knew that she could choose genres that were most effective for the kinds of arguments, the kinds of viewpoints she wanted to share with her audiences. So like her parents, she she wrote novels. Both of her parents wrote Gothic novels, uh, and uh, she followed suit with Frankenstein and then with her great plague novel, The Last Man. And but but Mary Shelley also wrote across other genres as well. She she wrote a, a lot of nonfiction. She wrote biographies of a number of political thinkers, including Machiavelli uh, and Rousseau. She 
wrote a lot of memoristic writing, including her journals and also letters. She was a devoted letter writer. And some of her, I think some of her best writing is in her letters to many of the leading intellectuals of the period, whether that be um, her friend Lee Hunt, wife Marianne, her and Percy's very close friend, uh, Mariah Gisborne. So Mary Shelley, like her parents, was a was an interdisciplinary and cross-genre writer. And she didn't see the divides, as it were, uh, in the same way we do between fields like political science, philosophy, and literature. That said, she did see what she was doing as different than her parents. Um, and I think there are good reasons for her to, to, to see herself as doing something different than her parents. She saw her strength as her, her strength in philosophy was not that of her father, who was a great analytical, deductive philosopher. If you've read his political justice, you, in, in some ways, it's a, it's, it's a very traditional 18th century political treatise rooted in the work of, of thinkers like Hobbes and uh, also Bentham, you know, who wrote in the traditional analytical, deductive style um, that we now associate with Anglo, Anglo-American analytical philosophy. And she knew that work by heart. She dedicates Frankenstein to Godwin, the you know the author of Political Justice and Caleb Williams. But she she sees herself as as I think more in tune with with an older tradition of philosophy, you know that of Plato. She she went on after publishing Frankenstein to help to translate Plato's Symposium with her husband Percy Shelley when they lived in Italy. And that translation becomes quite important to her philosophically as she moves on to write The Last Man, her second great dystopian novel. But like Plato, Mary Shelley was an aporetic philosopher. She was an open-ended philosopher. Um, she, she wasn't interested in deriving uh, discrete deductive conclusions uh, in the way that her father was. She was much more interested in asking open-ended questions about the world, um, why we're here, what is the meaning of it all. And, uh, and she's also highly literary, and she sets up her novels in a way that the characters engage in a kind of philosophical dialogue with one another about deep existential and ethical questions uh, that, that enable the reader then to enter into a kind of thought experiment, as it were, where we too participate in this philosophical dialogue by thinking through the kinds of questions the characters are asking of one another. And so in the novel Frankenstein, this is most vividly represented when the creature made by the chemist Victor Frankenstein confronts his maker on the Mer de Glace in the Alps and demands of his father scientist the right to live in the interchange of those sympathies which are necessary for my being. And what I've argued in my work, including Artificial Life After Frankenstein, is that, that this is in some ways the driving philosophical question of Mary Shelley's work. And it was very much rooted in her mother's work. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, had written several books, some, some novels, some treatises that engaged this very question. What, what are the rights of the human being? And among those rights, do we have a right to be cared for? And Mary, Mary Shelley, um, as a devoted reader of her mother's works, dials up that question a notch and has the creature ask, I think, an even more provocative question than her mother had raised in the time of the French Revolution. And, and the question of the creature is, do we have a right to share love with one another? Do we actually, do we as human beings, as creatures made by other humans, we have a right to share love and to live in community with one another, in a community animated by love, not merely care, not merely respect, 
but in a community animated by love? And that's the poignant question that the creature um, raises for us as readers today. Yeah, I think that's an excellent, you gave such a great overview of both uh, Mary Shelley, her parents, like you said, the very inherently interdisciplinary and cross-genre approaches of people working in that time, how different that is from our time, and this poignant question that really is, I think, also so much at the heart of the book and also, I think, should be more front and center in a lot of our debates about contemporary politics and technology than it usually is, this idea of our relationships with one another, um, the treatment of individuals as being composed by our relations with each other and, and this right to a community uh, supported with respect and love. So I really appreciate that. And I, I wanted to kind of bring back, because I, I really liked that you brought up this notion of operia. And I really appreciate that because I, I think also what was really nice and interesting and in thinking about these topics and, and engaging with Mary Shelley is this idea of there's both this kind of connections to the past, so connections to her own parents who were Enlightenment thinkers, but also connections to the Greeks, which often when, if anyone takes, you know, an intro to political theory or political philosophy class, often a way to structure it would be really a divide between the ancients and the moderns. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit more to this notion of aporia, this the way in which Mary Shelley was uh, saw herself inspired or conversant with Greek philosophy versus what ways in which she was very modern. Is there anything uniquely modern about her work and that sets us apart when we draw on her for thinking about these topics? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think one thing to remember about Mary Shelley is that when she eloped with Percy, who is a very well-known poet and Republican, also scandalous for his advocacy of free love, his practice of free love, his abandonment of his first wife to elope to Europe with not only Mary, but her stepsister, Claire Claremont. When she ran away with Percy in 1814, Mary Shelley did something quite radical, not only as a person, as a young woman, but also she she embarked on a, a on a form of intellectual rebellion of, with him. But what was so interesting about their way of being intellectual rebels was that it actually was a return to ancient political philosophy in particular. So we know from their first co-kept journal from 1814 to 1815 that Almost as soon as they return from their trip to France and Switzerland that summer, they begin studying ancient Greek together in September 1814. And Mary is a quick study. We know from the journals that she is copying down passages from ancient Greek texts um, and even adapting them for her own purposes. So, for example, in the end papers of her first journal book, she's adapted in her hand a quote from Aeschylus's Seven Against Thebes, and, and it's a passage about Oedipus. And she's implicitly comparing herself with Oedipus. She's comparing herself with the dark fate of Oedipus. And I think what Mary Shelley does very early on in her study of, of ancient Greek literature and philosophy is to become concerned with the question of fate, question of free will, what is their relationship, are they compatible, to what extent do we make our own fates, do we make our own tragedies, to what extent does tragedy happen to us and we have no control over it, maybe we're just left to deal with the consequences of fate. 
And if so, how much of that is free? And that, I think, really becomes a driving question of her work going through Frankenstein, going through her great pandemic novel, The Last Man, which comes out in 1826. By that point, of course, Percy is dead. Percy drowns in 1822 off the coast of Italy, leaving her a widow with one sole surviving child. She suffered multiple child loss during their marriage. And as feminist scholars have noted for many decades now, that surely affected her treatment of life and death issues in both of her great works of Gothic literature. So I think what Mary Shelley got from going back to ancient Greek literature and philosophy with Percy was a concern with fate, a concern with tragedy, and how much control we have over the bad parts of our lives. But what made her modern is her profound concern with the history of science. She was very interested in science, how it had evolved in the Enlightenment, and then also how it was happening in her own time, in that she goes to hear Humphrey Davies give lectures that form the speeches of the scientists in Frankenstein regarding modern chemistry. There have been several books written recently about her command of the medical literature of the period, even the literature on Arctic exploration, which shapes the framing of the novel of Frankenstein. Mary Shelley read widely in science, and I think her her interest in science actually shapes her interest in the question of determinism as well, because she was she was familiar with the ideas of, of Hobbes. She was actually more deeply aware of the ideas of Spinoza at the time she wrote Frankenstein, but she, she goes on to become more familiar with the work of Hobbes. But both Hobbes and Spinoza are two of the most important political thinkers who advocate for a fundamentally deterministic worldview. And I think Mary Shelley, as, as someone interested in the history of modern science, and yet somebody who also is interested in ancient questions of fate and free will, was interested in, in how, how do we reconcile a modern scientific account of determinism with some of these ancient questions about fate, about providence, about the gods? in their role in shaping our lives. That's what I think ultimately makes Mary Shelley a very interesting modern thinker because she she's able to incorporate both ancient Greek literature and ideas, but also Judeo-Christian ideas on creation, life and death in her thought. So she she's a modern, she's a scientific thinker, she's a philosophic thinker, she's fundamentally a determinist, I think, like, say, Spinoza, but she also is interested in how do we recover a sense of responsibility over our own lives, given that we are fundamentally determined. And she, and then she resources both Greek literature and mythology, as well as Judeo-Christian creation stories, in order to grapple with those questions in a literary manner, um, in a way that gives the modern reader new stories, new frameworks, new allegories with which to approach these ancient questions. So this is why she ends up titling or subtitling Frankenstein, the, the modern Prometheus. So I think Mary Shelley ultimately sees herself as resourcing Greek literature as a way of updating these ancient stories that enable us to think through these tough questions, such as how much control do we have over our own fates? Great. Yeah. And I, I, I you, you have sort of explained it there, but I wondered if you could go into a little bit clearer detail about the nature of the determinism that Mary Shelley is ascribing to and the nuances of her work, though, of both this appreciation for determinism, appreciation for fate, 
while also being very keen to this idea of artificiality of uh, social construction? Well, I think that on determinism, she certainly, she knew her Spinoza. She starts to translate Spinoza's theological political treatise with Percy in the fall of 1817. So just at the time she's sending Frankenstein off to press. She is starting to work on a complete translation of the theological political treatise, which is now lost. We also know that the Shelleys owned a copy of Spinoza's Ethics. She was well aware of Spinozan determinism. And also Percy had used many Spinozistic ideas in his poetry. And there's a particular poem, Queen Mab, which most scholars think shaped Frankenstein, but also her later novel, um, The Last Man. That view, that spinozistic view of the universe we find in Queen Mab is one that understands everything is interconnected. It's a very poetic vision of, of what Spinoza argued for. It's, it's not in that geometric deductive style that we associate with Spinoza. But what it does is it, it takes that Spinozan argument for the, the interconnectedness of all things, the way in which the whole universe is tied together in a causal chain. It turns that into a vision of the universe itself, a poetic vision of the universe itself. So I think in some sense what Mary Shelley did in conversation with Percy, is accept the bad of the world as an ineluctable part of it. So even the beauty of the world was tied up in the awful, in the, the ugly, the bad. And this is what makes Frankenstein such a powerful story, because the creature is, in fact, designed by Victor Frankenstein to be a human being, a very large human being, eight feet tall. But initially, Victor Frankenstein wants him to be beautiful and intends him to be beautiful. And he selected all his parts to be beautiful. But when he animates him, the creature appears horrid and hideous to his maker, much to the, the tragedy of both, because Victor Frankenstein is unable to fulfill any sense of parental duty towards the creature out of fear for him. And then the creature is bereft of any kind of love or community, which is essential to his being as a sensitive creature. And so even in the figure of, of the creature, the specter of the creature, we find this, this combination of the beautiful and the ugly that I think was inherent in the Shelley's vision of the universe itself. So according to their Spinoza and philosophy, the, the, the evil in the world is, is part and parcel of the good or the beautiful. And, and accepting that, no matter how horrifying it might be, is actually a path towards a more ethical vision of one's relationship to the cosmos. And so I think in some ways we could almost read Victor Frankenstein's moral failure and Frankenstein's ethical failure as, as, as a failure to appreciate the ineluctable, inextricable quality of, of ugliness and badness to the world itself. His, his kind of hubristic desire to make the world perfect according to his own image of, or, or conception of what perfection is. You know, and Mary Shelley being, having been a young mother who had already lost one child by the time she wrote Frankenstein, understood that, especially when it comes to making life, one must accept imperfection, ugliness, death as part of it. Death and life are inextricably intertwined. And that's part of the horror but of life, but it's also part of the beauty of life. I think that's the, the poetic vision of Spinozism that, that she derived in part from Percy's poetry, but also I think from her own very difficult life experience as a, as a young mother who, who at the, the age of 16 became pregnant, age of 17 lost her first child. Mary Shelley was confronted with 
with horror and death at a very young age. And she found a way to move on. And that, that's what I find so powerful about her deterministic spirituality, which is, I think, quite unique and a product of her great intellect, a product of her ability to process and combine a lot of seemingly incompatible ideas in the Western tradition, bring them together in her own creative vision of how we come to terms with the problem of evil itself. I think also a beautiful vision of both just the concept itself of how we have to combine and see kind of the darkness and the light and the beauty and the horror and tragedy and joy as being inextricably connected and a part of the way that we orient ourselves to others in the universe. I find that, you know, very moving in itself. And then also how you've tied that to Mary Shelley's personal experiences, as well as her intellect and this idea of, you know, incorporating and the inextricability of personal strategies, personal experiences with the philosophical developments and philosophical contributions that she offers to us. And this idea of the way that Dr. Frankenstein symbolizes this, I would say you could say personifies this, the hubris for technological perfectionism and mastery, um, and especially one without the sense of duty and care for the creature that he is ultimately something he created is ultimately traceable to him and his responsibility. So I kind of have like two different threads of thought I wanted to go into with that, which is one, the the personal sides, the way that family life, you know, women's experiences or people's personal experiences that have often been excluded from political discussion. What do incorporating knowledge of those experiences do for us when we think about both politics and, and ethics and um, our moral relationships to one another um, as a part of a political community? That, that was the first kind of thread I wanted to kind of get your your thoughts on. And, and this can you can draw on, you know, your other work, too, more broadly. Well, at the beginning, you brought up the idea of modern political science fiction. And uh, one thing that my book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, tries to do is show that Mary Shelley, in some sense, is just the beginning of this this tradition that takes off as it were, after her novels, Frankenstein and the Last Man. And among the, the thinkers that I study, not only in the book, but also in my teaching, among those thinkers that come after Mary Shelley is Octavia Butler. Um, and uh, Octavia Butler was described by uh, Samuel Delaney as the most important Black writer of science fiction. And I think that that still holds true. Uh, she's really a landmark figure in the history of science fiction, in part because what she does as, as a person who's been marginalized as, as a Black woman writer is um, use the genre of science fiction in explicitly political terms to address the ways in which people who are subject to prejudice are often excluded, marginalized, discriminated against, from the very beginning of life, that there's 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 almost no escape from the problem of oppression and discrimination when you have been categorized as the other from the very beginning or onset of life. And so most scholars agree that Butler was influenced by Mary Shelley, in particular Frankenstein. There's been a lot of scholarship to show the ways in which her novels and novellas 
are rooted in the themes of Frankenstein. In Artificial Life After Frankenstein, I focused on her novella Blood, Blood Child um, as a kind of Frankensteinian narrative. More recently, I've taught her novel Kindred, uh, which is coming out as a series on Hulu, I think next week. I'm very much looking forward to watching that. But if you're familiar with the premise of Kindred, you know that what she does is she takes a Black woman from the late 1970s who's married to a white man. They're in a happy marriage. They're both writers. They've defied the racism in their family to be married and to be happy together. And then all of a sudden, the woman gets transported back to 1815 to the antebellum South, um, where she has to deal with the fact that her, her relatives, her ancestors are enslaved. And I think that that novel is a really powerful representation of the ways that um, Mary Shelley's fiction can be used to illustrate the ways in which the marginalization, the oppression, the discrimination against people who are perceived as others quite literally begins with birth in that it's a political problem, which we all share, regardless of literally where or when we are. So by using the tra the time travel motif, what Octavia Butler calls to mind is the ways in which we in the present are bound to our ancestors in the past, even now in um, systematic patterns and institutions of oppression based in the historic practice of slavery. And so I think Butler is a kind of fun example of how contemporary political science fiction has built on Shelley. Interestingly, in Butler's case, using time travel to go back in time to explore the ties that bind us across history um, around oppression and slavery. But whereas Mary Shelley, interestingly, back in 18, you know, 1816 uh, to 1817, when she wrote Frankenstein, was um, thinking in a, in a more near future sense. Um, she was imagining Victor Frankenstein attending medical school in Ingolstadt. According to the dating of the novel, it, it, it's probably set in the late 18th century. Um, there's been a lot of good, good scholarship to, to locate the novel in the late 18th century in the Enlightenment. Um, but, but I think in some ways, what Mary Shelley is, is imagining is obviously futuristic. She's imagining science that, that still has not been realized fully in our time. And so it's interesting to see how Shelley uses, a, I guess, a mix of recent historical setting with futuristic thought on science to create a, 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 new, a new vein of political science fiction in the modern era that continues to be, I think, quite inspirational for science fiction writers today. I love the examples of Octavia Butler's work. I mean, she's an excellent writer and thinker on these issues, too. And I think also illustrates this idea of, you know, reckoning with history, reckoning with the past as a way of it can make something seem prescient that sounds prescient, but really it comes from this keen sensitivity and awareness of history and how it's currently shaping the present moment and, and will continue to shape the future. And so I, I, I wanted to kind of transition a little bit to the contemporary debates that you're engaging with and you're responding with and how these insights that you have developed in thinking about both, you know, responsibility and care. And I want to con contextualize this a little bit because 
what I was really struck by in your work was talking about current debates on genetic engineering, but also all, all sorts of reproductive assistive technologies and how there's been debates about the ethics of these as though they are futuristic, you know, out there, abstract, totally almost alien technologies that has denied the way in which they already are being used. There's already people who are affected by these debates whose rights are at play here. And also, I think just to draw it further, that we can, again, draw connections to these technologies, to ways that human beings have always shaped each other, the ways that you talk about Mary Wollstonecraft as theorizing womanhood as being somewhat constructed, women being shaped and educated and reared in a way to serve men and how that kind of that is both a, a tragedy, a, a way of understanding oppression, and it's also a way of understanding how to mitigate and reconcile and uh, improve, resolve those problems because we are all, as human beings, shaped by each other, shaped by education. So, yeah, I just would love to hear your thoughts on that, on this idea of a technologically exciting, trendy sense of the way that we talk about artificiality and, and artificial intelligence and, and technological change of, of people, and then these sort of historical precedents and what that does for us to think in those terms. Yes, thank you. Yeah, one of my primary motivations for writing Artificial Life After Frankenstein was reading a number of very important works on bioethics by uh, leading political theorists, such as Michael Sandel and Francis Fukuyama, that, that seemed to me out of touch with recent history. These authors write as if gen genetic engineering of children in the germline had not happened. A lot of these books came out at the turn of the century, seemingly without uh, awareness of very recent medical developments, uh, such as the use of three-person IVF to boost mothers' fertility in the late 20th century, such that uh, children were born with three people's DNA. And now that that technique is known as uh, mitochondrial replacement therapy, and it, it's, it's legal in several countries, including Britain, and it, it is used to prevent birth defects, to prevent very, very serious, often fatal genetic diseases that are carried um, through mitochondria. So Sandel, Fukuyama, others wrote these epic, important landmark books in bioethics that I do value as a political theorist because what they did is so important. They, they showed the ways that debates we're having about, about genetic engineering and cloning are really important political questions. And I think they enabled a wider spectrum of people in society to see these so-called bioethical questions as political questions. That's invaluable contribution. But, but what frustrated me as I started to research the actual history of genetic engineering is that they didn't seem to have done their homework there. And then my, my question was, then, then what is the value of the theories built on the critique of genetic engineering if they're not rooted in fact and history? Are we just doing a kind of fear-mongering speculation about the future of human cloning and the future of genetic engineering unrooted in actual fact? So what I tried to do in this book, and I suppose it's somewhat paradoxical because I, I also resource fiction uh, in making my arguments, but what I tried to do is root my arguments about the ethics of genetic engineering of children in the history of genetic engineering of children. And I point out that, you know, at least 100 children 
are known to have been produced by three-person IVF since 1997, and, and probably many, many more because so many of these treatments were used in, in fertility clinics and the fertility industry is largely unregulated. And therefore, we really don't know how many children out there have been genetically engineered in the germline, as in they have heritable modifications to the genome. And of course, in 2018, the year that I um, finished the book, Artificial Life After Frankenstein, two children, Nana and Lulu, were born in China, and they were genetically modified in the germline through a process called CRISPR-Cas9. And the, the scientist responsible for that, Dr. Zhang Kui, who was imprisoned in China for some time, I think only recently released for, for going against their society's rules and regulations for using such technologies to modify the human genome. So in some sense, what I wanted to highlight in this book was that Mary Shelley was quite prescient back in 1816 to 1817 when she wrote Frankenstein, because what she imagined is something that we're starting to deal with, especially since the late 20th century. But Mary Shelley saw it coming. She saw the ethical and political questions that arise when we use science and technology to create children or to modify children and then don't provide the appropriate support system around them to ensure that they have all the basic rights they need to flourish as people, as other humans do. And so that was one of my major projects in Artificial Life After Frankenstein was in some sense to give the child produced by genetic engineering and other forms of assisted reproductive technology a place in the history of human rights. And then to use Mary Shelley's ideas as a kind of philosophical framework for advocating for their basic rights as what I call artificial creatures. And this brings me to your question about artificiality. In the book, I argue that Following Mary Shelley, we should all understand ourselves as artificial creatures. It's not just Frankenstein's creature who's artificial um, in contrast to the rest of humanity. I think what Mary Shelley's fiction leads us to see, and, and maybe this comes out even better in her second great work of dystopian fiction, The Last Man, her pandemic novel, she, she leads us to see that in the ways in which we're all shaped by society, culture, education, often beyond our control, as we were discussing earlier, um, we're determined, we're shaped by society in a deep way, you know, she would have been aware. She read Locke's essay concerning human understanding before she wrote Frankenstein, even before we're born um, in the womb, we're, we're being shaped by sensation. We're being shaped by experience um, even before we're born. And, and of course, modern science holds this up as we, we understand that, that babies, as they are developing in their mother's womb, are being shaped by that, that prenatal environment. And so I think what Mary Shelley does as a philosophical literary writer is encourage us to understand ourselves as artificial creatures because human beings are, are technological animals uh, to play on Aristotle's idea of us as political animals. We're, te we're, we're technological animals as much as we are political animals because we one of the first things we do is we make art, we make culture, we use um, writing to create an imaginative world around ourselves that then in turn shapes who we are over time across centuries. We pass down that civilization, which is in fact an artifact of our of our own artificial intelligence, as it were. And uh, we we teach one another for, for better or for worse through that that living legacy of our of our civilizational culture. And I, in the ending of my book, I 
venture a vindication of the rights and duties of artificial creatures based on some of the uh, political treatises of the 1790s, such as her mother's uh, vindications of the rights of man and woman. And argue that using Mary Shelley's ideas, we can, uh, we, we, we not only can, but we should begin to think about the rights of all artificial creatures. And artificial creatures to me encompasses not only humans, uh, and, and including human children, but also um, perhaps in the future, uh, artificial intelligences, AI equipped robots, beings or things that are inanimate now, but might become animate or conscious or sentient or sensitive in the future. Um, I talk a little bit about uh, sex robots at the end of the book, and I use some of Mary Wollstonecraft's ideas to critique the way that uh, we uh, depersonalize the, the sex robot um, at our own peril. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I see the book as using Mary Shelley's ideas to get us to rethink who we are as, as people, to understand people as artificial creatures, um, and then to expand our definition of what a person might be by, by looking at AI, especially humanoid automata, looking at you know, literary representations of humanoid automata, such as Blade Runner, as, as kind of inspiration for, for getting us out of our comfort zone and, and maybe thinking a bit more broadly about what it means to be a being and whether things might become beings and whether we ought to think about things differently as a result. <laughs> No, I love that. I think that's excellent. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought all that up because I that's what I wanted to to hear you speak on. And that was something that really impacted me at more specifically the way that you expand our way of thinking about humanity, because um, we use the term humanity in so many ways. So we talk about it as sort of the sense of humanity, um, you know, an, an ethical kind of a, a moral notion of sensitivity. But, you know, I think people might normally think, oh, humanity refers to the biological species of humanity. And what you are bringing us to think about is the way in which we are all interconnected, both ecologically with nature, but also with the built environment that we create and that we are creating ourselves always in some way historically. And so, you know, you have that that phrase of humanity as a built environment. And, and, and that is not to say that it's sturdy. In fact, it's to say that it's fragile and it's re revisable and it's subject to change. And, and the way that we create our world reflects back on us. So your issues with the ethics of AI and also sex robots have to do with the world that we create, the objects that we're creating, not just this notion of what are we doing that to others when we do that, but what are we doing to ourselves when we create and how does that shape the way that we think of the category of human and do we end up dehumanizing people in some way and then also, you know, not seeing the possibilities, again, of harm that can be done through our actions to others. And so I, I really appreciate that expansiveness and the idea that, you know, th this is an open ended conversation, right? Like this is something that your your vindication that you have at the end, you talk about it being intergenerationally revisable and, and debatable. And the idea is that it's something that could be used in different communities and, and we people can think about it in different ways. It doesn't have to be this rigid imposition, but it's more about keeping these questions and relationships at the forefront of our mind when we're we're thinking about these different topics that might not be so obvious on the face of it how um, reproductive technologies 
are interrelated to artificial intelligence, but they really are because of this, this interconnectedness that you've described. I think it's really important to think about these, these issues as interconnected, the issues that might not obviously tie together, but, but once we take a revised view of the human condition and we, we think about it in wider terms in this kind of cosmological Spinozan sense that I think the Shelley's advocated, uh, we do. Um, once we, we think of ourselves as products of a, a broader causal chain of culture and society and science and art and nature itself, it's all woven together, as it were. Uh, then I think we can we can see really interesting ethical connections and political connections between things as reproductive justice and AI ethics. And the genetic engineering issue gets at a lot of issues around reproductive justice. One thing I talked about in the book was the insensitivity I, I, I saw in a lot of commentators' views, including Habermas, towards um, women's rights to uh, fertility treatment. When I took a close look at some of the language he uses to describe artificial reproductive technology or um, what we now say more sensitively as assisted reproductive technology, I think uh, Habermas, um, whose work obviously is monumental and generally has a, just a wonderfully humane quality to it, I, I, you could still see this kind of lingering prejudice against um, women's rights to, to, to do science and technology and medicine uh, to have children, you know, it, you know, as if that's wrong. And as if interventions into reproduction haven't been historically, there aren't historical precedents for these types of um, methods and experiences. And I think it is interesting because it does feel like a lot of what is historically taboo, maybe because people can't deal with the tragedy, contingency, and yes, I mean, the the sort of very bodily pain and difficulties that we kind of talked about at the beginning of this podcast that Mary Shelley was so sensitive to and, and this idea of taking all that bad on with the good. It does seem like historically philosophers have struggled when talking about things like sex and reproduction because they have been to some extent on the outside of it. And then it perpetuates certain misconceptions and certain ways that are uh, perpetuates ex exclusions and uh, I don't know the best way, uh, prejudices that uh, affect affect the way that we then, you know, think about some very complicated and important political issues like like the rights of children um, and, and a reproductive justice, as as you are saying. Right. Well, it's interesting when, you know, yeah, I mentioned your amazing work on Bentham. And what I've learned the most from your work on Bentham is how is in some sense not inevitable that that philosophers have to be insensitive to uh, the question of women's rights um, when they themselves are single or child-free, uh, as Bentham was. Um, Bentham, in many ways, led a, an, an unorthodox life as a uh, late 18th century male intellectual. Uh, and, and maybe in some ways that made him more sensitive to the condition. And, um, and as your work has shown, when he designed the Satimian, a, 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 an institution to support women who had, had had or were going to have children outside of marriage, Bentham was very concerned to protect um, women's autonomy, women's sense of bodily freedom, um, women's physical pleasure. 
that childbirth shouldn't be altogether painful. It doesn't have to be as painful as it is. Uh, you know, even design chairs um, that would enable women to have less pain in childbirth. And so, I mean, I think Bentham is an example of, a, of, a, of an Enlightenment philosopher who Mary Shelley eventually came to know, uh, at least indirectly uh, later in life, who defies a lot of these stereotypes. And I think also gives us some material for maybe resourcing Enlightenment thought more for these challenging questions of our time. Thinkers like Bentham, thinkers like Mary Shelley can be unexpected resources for, for thinking through really troubling questions that leading thinkers of our time have often failed to address. And I think going back to their works, especially thinkers like Bentham and Shelley, who, who were futuristic in their thinking, you know, who really use literature in particular, use art, use design, um, use, use creative thinking to get past troubling ideas of their own time. I think they provide a model for us today how we can kind of move past some of the limiting paradigms of thought that we've inherited. And so I think Mary Shelley provides a profound challenge against some of the biases in uh, political theory and bioethics. And she also provides, I think maybe even more importantly, a framework for AI ethicists today. And what I find really exciting about working on this topic is how positive the reception of Mary Shelley has been within AI ethics in, say, the last 10 years that AI ethicists who you know who are interdisciplinary, who come from fields like computer science and law and philosophy and uh, political science and so on, AI ethicists respond to Mary Shelley's work, especially Frankenstein, with great enthusiasm. Because what it does is it gives them a kind of modern allegory for exploring the ethics of making artificial creatures who are either as intelligent as we are or potentially smarter than we are. And what could be scarier than that? that's smarter than we are. I love that. And I love hearing that. Yeah. Thank you for all of that reflection. And I, I'm glad to hear both the reception of Mary Shelley among um, AI ethicists and, and this idea of this allegory and, and, and bring up Bentham. Like, I, I appreciate that too. And thank you for your kind words on that. Um, Cause my work on Bentham really did change the way that I saw the history of philosophy, the history of political theory and, and the canon, because here you have this thinker. And I think maybe in some respects, potentially the reception of the thinker, the way that people have different people have read them shapes what gets kind of passed down and what we associate them with. And then we miss some of these very prescient, very almost radically progressive concepts and, and, and futuristic ways of thinking. I just I just wanted to add to that this idea that like you said, that with Frankenstein as this allegory and, and literary genre and not limiting all ourselves to the typical political theory texts or typical ways of, you know, drawing out a logical argument and expanding our horizons beyond that. You know, Bentham was a thinker who was designing institutions and that doesn't always necessarily lead to, you know, he's known for the panopticon, which can be a very, it can be used as shorthand for very harmful forms of surveillance. And yet he also designed the Sodomion, which was very, very different form of, of protection against social costs of stigma around illegitimate pregnancies that were specifically related to the sexual double standard. And so I just point that out to say, you know, you didn't have a straightforward essay on here are all the problems with the way that we treat women and we treat sex and, re and reproduction and marriage necessarily did write about those things. But it's actually when you go beyond that, when you see he's reading, you know, gothic literature and he's 
talking to different people and, and then you read the archives, that's where we kind of reimagine and rethink some of the ways that we've thought about political philosophy, political theory, and also, you know, ways that we can reimagine our politics today, too. Yeah, it's wonderful. And just to tie it all together, um, I was able to go to Oxford's Bodleian Library this summer to study Mary Shelley's journals and other manuscripts from her family's collection there. And one thing I found is an essay um, by Mariah Gisborne, who was a friend of both Wollstonecraft and Godwin, and then became a very close friend of Mary Shelley. And uh, Mariah Gisborne um, was a friend of Bentham's. And uh, this essay that uh, is in the Bodleian uh, describes her meeting of Bentham in Constantinople in 1785. And where it gets really interesting is not just the content of the story in which um, Moragas Boren reflects on how progressive Bentham was on gender um, and defends him against um, some uh, rumors that were circulating about him at the time that he hated women and she, she vindicates Bentham and says, no, he, he treated me with total respect. He respected me for my mind and my musical ability. And then of course, um, this is little known, um, and this is why this document is so important. Bentham goes on to hire her to be the secretary on the Panopticon project. And then it gets even more interesting, uh, and to tie it all back to Mary Shelley, it's Mary Shelley who enables Mariah Gisborne to get back in touch with Bentham in, right before Bentham dies in 1832. Shelley, yeah, and Mary Shelley is the one who basically arranges for um, Mariah Gisborne to give this testimony of her early relationship with Bentham. And so this essay dates from 1832, right before Bentham dies. And uh, But it's so interesting to think of these two figures, Bentham um, and Shelley, um, being tied together through the experience of this little-known woman who served as a secretary on the Panopticon Project, who led a very unorthodox life herself. And it, it shows the ways in which well, great minds think alike, uh, but also creative minds think alike. Bentham and Shelley are great examples of Enlightenment-era thinkers, thinkers deeply shaped by the Enlightenment, who use that, that training in modern science and modern philosophy to, to do incredibly creative things that, that, that literally other thinkers had not done before. And so I'm hoping in my future research, I'm going to be able to firm up some of the ties between uh, Bentham and Shelley. I love that. I love, I'm so glad you shared that with us because I am so excited. <laughs> As you can tell, that is a big help to me in my work too. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Since this is our last episode of our first season, I wanted to close out with some thoughts both on what we talked about with Eileen, but also kind of the broader arc of this season and what we hope to talk about in our next season, which we are currently preparing. When we encounter artificial life, what exactly are we troubled by? Is it encountering something artificial? I think our conversation helped us think about the fact that artificiality, creation, social construction, these are all inherent to the human condition. This is what we do as people. We create the world around us and we use technology to facilitate what we want to do. So it's not so clear that mere artificiality is what might cause anxiety or fear. And this brings me to something that has transpired since this conversation, but is happening 
in public discourse right now, which is the rise of AI chatbots being released to the public from companies like OpenAI, Google, and Microsoft. And their reaction to these chatbots have been very much a sense of these are transformative technologies. There's even this feeling of, are they approaching sentience in having very emotionally charged conversations with people? And I think what is central and what we should think about with these technologies is it's not just what is inherent to the technologies, but what they do to us. It doesn't necessarily matter whether an AI is actually sentient in the sense of someone can perceive them as sentient. And in doing so, it'll affect the relationship that they have with that technology and with other people in their lives. And it will affect our entire community as well. This episode presents one way of confronting those ethical and political questions about technology And that is in engaging with literature, with fictions, with movies. And in confronting these different stories that we tell, they express certain feelings, certain intuitions, certain reflections on our lives, on our communities and our histories and how our histories shape the present and the future. I want to clarify one concept that we talked a little bit about, and that is the notion of aporia. Aporia comes from Greek, and it's the idea of confusion, a moment of befuddlement, puzzlement, especially as Eileen talks about the open-ended nature of the endings of books like Frankenstein that leave you with a lingering sense of unease and also change a reflection, a willingness to rethink your opinions and that this is necessary for intellectual growth. An aporia is difficult. It requires sitting with confusion and allowing that confusion to work on you, Um, not just searching for an easy resolution or turning back to what's familiar. It means that we think about these big questions of what are the limits of what we can control and create? What is the inherently tragic nature of life, the intertwining of beauty and horror and sadness? And while this can be very difficult to think about these big questions and allow us to live in that confusion, we don't have to do it alone. And that's why I value these conversations and the idea of thinking about these things together. So I hope that you'll join us for a whole new set of conversations in our next season. Thank you so much. Till next time.